0: The term Stockholm Syndrome first showed up in 1973 at an attempted bank robbery in Stockholm, thus the Stockholm Syndrome, in case you were wondering. A man tried to rob a bank, and the police caught him inside, but he took four hostages and held them for 131 hours. During that time, he terrorized them. He fired his Russian automatic assault weapon at them, he threatened to kill them several times. He put nooses around their necks and threatened to hang them. But he didn't harm any of them. When he finally surrendered, something unusual happened. It was the first time this was noted. It, it, it was expected that the hostages would be hostile towards the hostage taker. But instead they became angry and they feared the police more than the hostage taker. They also didn't hate the hostage taker, they refused to testify against him. One of the ladies even got engaged to him. The FBI has analyzed thousands of hostage situations since that time and, and they found that this transfer of trust away from the police and onto the hostage takers happens frequently. The, the reason some go something like this. In, in hostage situations with a high level of life-threatening stress, People cope by denying what's happening. And the abused bonds, the abuser bonds with, with the abused. And that means that there's this, in, that enduring the, the violence is somehow something that they can cope with at the time. You know, in, in order to shield themselves from the fact that they may die at the hands of their captors, the hostages start to convince themselves that the hostage takers don't really want to hurt them. But in order for them to do that, they have to transfer their hate and their fear somewhere else, and and that somewhere else is usually the police. So the police become their enemies, and the hostage takers become their friends. And by making this transfer, they fool themselves into feeling safe. In extreme cases, a love relationship can develop. And the hostage taker is seen by by the hostage as a kind of a mother protecting them, from a terrifying world outside. It's amazing how damaged we can become and how mistaken we can be about love. In this situation, selfishness, control, evil, cruelty, and even abuse is confused by the victims to being a protective mother-like love. Of course, we don't have to go to such extremes to realize that the love isn't always what it should be. Now, children who grow up in abusive homes often end up being attracted to abusive partners. Love, or the promise of love, is too often used as a weapon to control or to manipulate. In our broken world, what is frequently passed off as acceptable love is really an obstacle to love as God defines it. Today we're going to look at obstacles to love so that we can avoid them in our pursuit of growing in the Christ-like love that Yahweh desires us to bear. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 8. I guess I still have the the wedding on my mind. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8. Page 971 of the blue books underneath the chair in front of you. Last week we started our look at... uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, the the fruit of the Spirit. And and we started looking at that first fruit of the Spirit, which is love. Specifically, we discovered that this first part of the fruit of the Spirit is a special divine, defined love. When the New Testament talks about this special love, it uses the word agape. In, In 1 John, John writes... This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we, we also ought to love one another. God's love was displayed for all to see. God's love was proven on the cross. And according to John, it's the model and the example for us to follow. He says, since God, we ought Pretty simple, in theory. But remember what we've been saying. We've been talking about fruit, and fruit comes not from effort. It's just a natural process of what happens when you're alive. It comes from abiding in Christ as the vine. It is what the Spirit produces and develops in your life. It isn't anything that you can will or work into your existence. But you can seek it. You can ask for it. You can also recognize when you don't have it. So, if you're struggling to love other Christians, which happens sometimes, by the way, in case you haven't noticed, there are two things you should do first. There's two things you should do. First, go to the source of love, which is God himself, and ask for his divine love to fill you. Ask for it. You do not have because you do not ask, right? Secondly, look at the model of love, the cross of Christ, and follow his example. But in order to help you flesh out what divine defined love looks like, we're going to be looking at one of the best descriptions of agape love found in the New Testament. Again, let's begin with verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is speaking to a church that has everything going for it. They had great preachers like Paul and Peter and Apollos. They had every spiritual blessing, we're told, and every spiritual gift. Nothing was lacking in their church. Nothing, Nothing, that is, except for love. In the love department, they were lacking. In the context of this passage, Paul has just finished telling the Corinthians that they have failed miserably as Christians. Paul tells them that they may have been able to speak with the tongues of angels and that they they may have had enough faith to move mountains. And they may have even been convicted enough in their faith to die for it. But none of that mattered because they didn't love. Think about it. You know, this is an impressive list. They were gifted, faith-filled, and committed, yet this impressive list isn't worth anything without love. It almost doesn't seem fair. I mean, it's a pretty good list. Maybe it's just a little bit incomplete. Or a lot incomplete. Remember what we talked about last week. First John 3.14, John declares, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. John wants his readers to have confidence in their conversion. He, He wanted them to know that they had new life coursing through their veins. And so the question becomes, how do you know that you've got the life that Yahweh gives through Christ? How do you know that your faith is real? John tells us, is that when you see the evidence of the kind of love that only God can produce in your life, then you know it's real. And only then. Think about it this way. You know, people can be dedicated. They can be gifted. They can be fanatical with their faith. They can even pull themselves up for the cause they believe in. But none of that proves they have new life. In fact, all of it can be, in the right context, proof of hatred, not love. So once again, we're reminded that displaying God's love for our lives, or in our lives, is a matter of life and death. It is proof that we've moved to life from death. You know, there's lots of other things that matter in our Christian walk. It's just that they don't matter if you don't have love I like the way John MacArthur summarizes Paul's thought here. He came up with this equation. He says, anything minus love equals zero. So so Paul accuses the Corinthians of being zeros. (laughs) To which they reply, hey, wait a minute. You can't talk to us like that. Then Paul says, sure I can. I'll prove it to you. I'm going to describe love to you and you tell me if you have it. This is the context of the passage that we read in weddings all the time. Kind of funny. What we therefore have before us in our passage today is a description of the kind of agape love that's supposed to be demonstrated in every Christian's life. Unfortunately, the Corinthians weren't, uh, were to be politically correct, love-challenged as a church. They were love-challenged. In our English Bibles, the description of, of love is given to us through a list of adjectives. But in the Greek, we have a list of 15 verbs. This tells us something about love. Like we learned last week, agape love is action. It's a verb. Agape love is activity. It's choice. It's a commitment we make. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that agape doesn't also have elements of emotion and feelings and warmth and compassion. It is love after all. But it's not the kind of love that's ruled by feelings. It is ruled by a conscious decision that we make. As we go through this list, you're going to notice that there are some things overlapping with the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. Again, you would expect this because we learned last week that love isn't only the first in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. It is also the master fruit. Out of love comes all the other aspects of the fruit. Today we're going to skip over the positive characteristics of agape love, and we're just going to focus on the negatives. Because knowing what something isn't, it's one of the best ways to to figure out what something is. So that's what we're going to do today. So what are the obstacles to love? What are those things that keep us from loving with the attitude and the qualities that define the way that God wants us to express love? First of all, envy. In verse 4, Paul tells us that love does not envy. Someone once called envy meanness of the soul. Proverbs 14:30 says that envy rots the bones. What a descriptive phrase just breaks us apart. Envy is a poisonous, deadly emotion. The root of the Greek word means to boil. To envy someone is to allow yourself to boil over someone else's success. Envy comes in two levels, two degrees. First, envy says, I want what you have. But if he is allowed to grow and fester, it moves to the stage that says, if I can't have what you have, I don't want you to have it either. How many movies has this been the theme of? Well, just let me give you an example from the Bible here. Look, look at Joseph's brothers. Acts 7.9 says, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. Joseph's brothers knew that Joseph was their father's favorite. They watched how their father pampered him, and their envy grew. They wanted his coat. They wanted the father's love that was only given to him on, to the degree that it was given to him. Eventually, their jealousy he led them to sell their brother into slavery and break their father's heart by allowing him to think that he was dead. That's kind of extreme. That's a a reality show. See how it happens. First, First they say to themselves, I wish my father loved me like he loves Joseph. But eventually envy becomes the attitude that says, if dad can't love us like he loves Joseph, then he's not going to be able to be allowed to love Joseph anymore. And Joseph's not going to be allowed to receive his love anymore. Envy is a huge obstacle to love because it warps our thinking and it moves us towards destructive, hateful behavior. Next, we see that love does not boast. The Greek word can be translated as windbag. I love that. Love is not a windbag. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I guess love's not a preacher then. How dare you? I kind of deserve that, but still, how dare you? A person who boasts is a person who calls attention to themselves. They're in the, hey, look at me and see how good I am kind of mode. Obviously, the person who boasts or brags is a person who also has a problem with pride. Paul tells us that there's only one thing as Christians that we can boast in. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.31, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Instead of saying, hey, look at me and say how good I am, we should be the kind of people that says, hey, look at me and see how good Jesus is. It's the only kind of boasting that's appropriate. Boasting about yourself is an obstacle to real love because any wind that boasting generates will only push other people away. Next, we graduate from boasting to pride. Pride's an incredible barrier to love. The word that the NIB translates as "proud" literally means to puff up." I like how the message paraphrases this Greek word. It says, "Love doesn't have a swollen head. Love doesn't think more of itself than it should. To be proud goes one step beyond boasting. To boast is to tell other people how good you are. To be proud means that you believe your own boasting. Deception. Self-deception. Pride in this context removes any interest in other people because when pride rules your hearts, other people don't matter. And neither does God. Psalm 10.4 says, In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Pride squeezes room out of our hearts for God or anyone else. No wonder it's such an obstacle to love. If we have no room for God, how can God display that fruit in our lives that is love? Pride removes any tolerance or any understanding or any patience, and it replaces it with what I call machine gun mouth. The machine gun mouth just lets fly, you know, with no regard for the casualties. Because it's a prideful person and they're focused on their feelings and their rights and their hurts, not the feelings or hurts of other people. That's where rudeness comes in. There's a progression here. The message translates uh, this verb by saying love doesn't force itself on others. Phillips translates this verb by saying, love has good manners. I like that. Rudeness is the natural result of pride. Rudeness says, since I'm the one who matters most, I don't care what you think or what you want. All I really care about is making myself look good, even if I do it by making you look bad. Or maybe you could even say, especially when I do it by making you look bad. The word literally means to behave shamefully or disgracefully. It means to embarrass others with our actions, purposely embarrass them. You know, we, have you ever met someone like that? You know, if you have, by the time you leave their presence, you feel small or ignored or, in the very least, embarrassed. By the time uh, you leave them, you just you have. No sense of who you really are. This kind of behavior is such a barrier to love. Instead of building people up, it destroys that. To build yourself up. Then we come to self-seeking. The message translates this phrase by saying, love isn't always me first. If you think about it, it's impossible to truly love and be self-seeking at the same time. Love and self-centeredness are at opposite ends of the spectrum. Now, Paul in Philippians 2, 3 and 4 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. The word the NIV translates as considers means to calculate or to assess, to take stock of. So, so Paul isn't saying, don't think of your, don't think of your interests, and don't, don't think that you're valuable. Somebody's talking about here. You are valuable. Jesus loves you. And that remain, remain, uh, removes any doubt that you're valuable. But it's entirely likely that you aren't as important as you think you are. More to the point, it's also likely that you have made a miscalculation on the importance of others. So you have to recalculate. You have to reassess. You know, you need to reassess the values of others because they're just as important as you are. Then he drives this point home by telling them not just to look out for their own interests, but look out for the interests of others. See, the problem isn't that we're looking after our own interests. That's that's to be expected. But the problem is with the self-seeker that that they step on the interests of others to get what they want, to look after their interests. They only consider their own interests, and that's as far as it goes. Obviously, that's another obstacle to love. Love is other-seeking, not self-seeking. I want you to think about the phrase consider others better than yourselves. What would, it ha- what would happen if, if everyone really actually applied this principle of agape love? What would it look like? You know, if you considered your interests, if you considered my interests above your interests, I got this messed up here. If you considered my interests above your interests, and if I considered my your interests above my interests, I need a coffee. Wouldn't we both be equally considerate of each other? Wouldn't there be an equality there? At the same time of being other seeking? Next we come to anger we find that love isn't easily angered. The message translates these words, love doesn't fly off the handle. Phillips translated love isn't touchy. I don't like Phillips' translation because I've been touchy several times this week. When you think about it, this is just the negative way of stating the first quality of love in Paul's list, the one that we skipped over because it's positive. To say that love isn't easily angered is to say that love is patient. Right? Love isn't easily angered when it's wrong. But more importantly, Paul connects the easily angered with the previous few few words. So Paul's speaking about the kind of anger that crops crops up after we're self-seeking and after we're prideful and after we're boastful. It's the kind of anger that shows up when we don't get our own way. It's the toddler kind of anger that's kicking in the candy aisle in the food store and having a tantrum. It's the beeping of the horn and the get out of the way, I'm late kind of anger. It's the kind of anger we feel when someone butts in the line in front of us. It's the kind of anger that we we show when we butt in line of somebody else, in front of somebody else. It's the kind of anger that our pride produces, that makes... It the kind of anger that's easy to set off, because it's fueled by considering ourselves and our interests above everyone else's. I have somewhere to go. I don't know whether you do or not, but you're in my way. Again, this is such a very common barrier to love. It's a barrier I see more and more in our fair city, especially when I'm in a car. But it's something that I sometimes see in the mirror as well. Next, keeping score. We're told that love keeps no record of wrongs. This is pretty common, too. Paul's using an accounting term. We aren't to keep a ledger of other people's sins so that we can use it whenever we want to win a fight. Let me put it to you this way. If you're keeping score, you've already lost the game. Seriously. If that's how, if that's how you relate to people, by keeping score, you've, you've already lost the love game. Keeping score is a barrier to love because it's also a barrier to mercy and forgiveness. It's like the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18 about the man who owed more than he could ever repay in his lifetime, but he was forgiven the debt by the king only to turn around and put in jail a friend of his who had her, owed him a relatively small amount of money. You know, to keep records of wrongs betrays our hearts, suggests that either we think that we've been forgiven little or that we deserve forgiveness that others don't. It's a heart of double standards where, where we beg for mercy but refuse to give mercy to anyone else pretty ugly when you think about it next and finally love doesn't delight in evil love doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with the truth you know, where would the media be if we were a society that didn't delight in evil where would hollywood be Turn on the television, go to Facebook or Twitter, listen or watch the news. How long would the news be if it didn't delight in evil? Now, how many, we'd have the weather, that would be it. And sometimes the weather can be evil. Now, how many sources of news would there be if we decided never to report on murders or wars or crime? You know, how much more room would there be on the internet for cute cat pictures if we didn't judge everyone's statements and actions by standards much higher and much more self-serving than the standards we place on ourselves? We seem to have become a society ruled by delighting in evil, by appointing ourselves judge and jury, being constantly indignant and offended Is that the air that we breathe today? We love to say, I told you so. Or I always knew there was something wrong with that guy. Instead of delighting in evil, we're to rejoice in the truth. Look at Jesus. What did he do? What did he do with the Samaritan woman in John 4? Did he make her feel dirty for her loose living? No. He didn't have to. Her conscience and her community had already done that job quite well. Think about that. Jesus didn't condemn her. He treated her with respect and compassion. Instead of beating her down with loads of accusations, he lifted her up by offering her living water. What about the woman caught in adultery in John 8? There she was, half naked, dragged through the streets of the city, like a side of beef, humiliated and used and accused. But does Jesus add insult to injury? Does he deny her sin? No. But neither does he delight in it. And he makes sure that no one else will delight in it either. He turns away her accusers. He removes the crowd by pointing, uh, the crowd of pointing fingers, and he he forgives her. Then he tells her to go and sin no more. You know, Jesus never overlooks the sin of others, but neither does he delight or focus on them. Instead, he focuses on on restoration. He, He focuses on what could be with his help. He's compassionate. Let me close with a story that Max Lucado tells in his book, A Love Worth Giving. He writes, it's a true story. Catherine Laws moved with her husband to Sing Sing Prison when she, when he became warden in 1921. When they moved there, she was a young mother of three daughters. Everybody warned her never to step foot inside the walls. But she didn't listen to them. When the first prison basketball game was held, in she went, three girls in tow, and took seats in the bleachers with the inmates. She once said, My husband and I are going to take care of these men, and I believe they will take care of me, so I don't have to worry. And when she heard that one convict, convicted murderer was blind, she taught him Braille so he could read. Upon learning of, of inmates who were hearing impaired, she studied sang, sign language so she could communicate. For 16 years, Catherine Law softened the hearts, the hard hearts of the men in Sing Sing. In 1937, the world saw the difference real love makes. The prisoners knew something was wrong when when Lewis Laws didn't report the work. Quickly, the word spread that Catherine had been killed in a car accident. The following day, her her body was placed in her home three-quarters of a mile from the prison. As the acting warden took his early morning walk, he noticed a large gathering at the main gate, every prisoner pressed against the fence, eyes awash with tears, faces solemn. No one spoke or moved. They, they'd come to stand as close as they could to the woman who had given them love. The warden made a remarkable, seemingly foolhardy decision. All right, men, he said, you can go. Just be sure you check in tonight. (laughs) Can you imagine? These were America's hardest criminals, murderers, robbers. These were men the nation had locked away for life. But the warden unlocked the gate for them, and they walked without escort or guard to the home of Catherine Laws to pay their last respects. And every one of those men returned that night. In our world, evil can sometimes cause us to be confused and beaten down. You know, we can become cynical and critical and judgmental. We can stop relating to one another or thinking of each other even as human beings and respecting each other. In extreme situations like like the Stockholm Syndrome, we can mistake cruelty and captivity for love. We can seek protection from those who seek to harm us. But when we avoid these barriers to love, we can really love. We can be like Catherine Loss and dissolve barriers of cruelty and captivity and impart dignity and respect into people's lives. By delighting in the truth. And what's that truth? Well, the truth is we're all created in the image of God. We're all equally loved by God. Whether we responded to that love or not. There are, are there any barriers to this love that we've, we've talked about today in your life? Do you have a problem with any of these things? ask God to help you to remove those barriers that keep keep us from loving like our God. Ask Him to give you a new, deeper appreciation for, for the love you have received but did not deserve. Ask for eyes and hearts and hands of compassion. May all our distorted, broken attempts at love be transformed by Seeking Jesus, transforming work of love in our lives. It's available to us. May we avail ourselves of it. Worship team.